secondly, um, and yeah. but I, I can't preach without that, so they're gonna try and fix, yeah. Um, secondly, I just, uh, so it's some of you guys to know that um, it helps me, um, frankly, when I'm preaching, and I feel like everybody's sitting in the back, I get anxious. I, I can't explain why, but I get anxious. And when I get anxious, I start screaming. And I don't want to scream, you know? I, I don't want to scream. I, so when I get anxious, I start. No, in all seriousness, some of you might know this and might not. My approach to preaching actually is, in my mind, as much as I proclaim God's word, in my mind, I'm sitting across from you a tape from a table with a coffee in my hand, you got coffee, and I'm talking to you. I'm reasoning with you. I'm not shouting at you. I'm not pushing. I'm trying to reason with you and allow God's word to penetrate your heart. So whether uh, it comes as a shock to you and, and folks up in the balcony, they're all like this right now. They're all like, I'm not picking on you guys, okay? I, some of y'all just want to be by yourself. That's okay. Um, but if I could just ask some of you guys, just for this next, just do it for me, okay? Do it for me. Just be like, all right, I'll just sit up front. I promise I won't. I can't promise I won't shout, but I promise I won't spit at you because I've heard that's another reason why people don't sit up front because they don't want to get spat on. Um, but if some of you guys could do that, and if you come late, that's okay. If you could, during offering time, find your way up here once the kids are dismissed to sit up front. Um, it just helps me in my preaching. So if that's okay, um, I greatly appreciate it. So before uh, I get into our sermon for today, I, 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 wanted to, I wanted to just share a couple of things just from my heart. And uh, some of you that have been coming to church, you know that every time I sit at a chair, this is highly unusual because I don't preach sitting in a chair. I do this actually when I need your attention to talk to you about something super, super important. Um, as I've come back from seven months off, and I, it's almost been actually about a year, here's what I'm realizing. I'm realizing that deep spiritual formation deep life change. It doesn't just happen because you're here on Sundays, you're in a small group or you're serving. I'm, I'm realizing that deep spiritual transformation, deep life change, doesn't just happen because you're doing church stuff. This might be sobering to you, but let me say this. In the last five, six years or so, I've seen more Christians grow up in church, know the Bible, do all the church stuff. I've seen more Christians struggle in marriages, get divorced, struggle with addictions, have their lives blow up. And I'm sitting here going, what is going on? What is going on that these folks grew up in church all their lives, know the lingo, know the Bible? You went to Wheaton from... You went to Bible Christian colleges for kind of not picking out Wheaton people. Wheaton, Moody, North Park, whatever. All we you know the Bible inside out. And yet let me ask you a question. Is your life being transformed? Hey, you Christian, been around church all your life. Is your marriage truly honoring to God? See, one of the things about me that you need to know if you don't know this is like, I don't, I don't want to play church 
I don't, I don't want to do church things. If, if what we're doing is not transforming lives, I don't want to just continue to do it. And this isn't to say that what we're doing is bad, but what I'm trying to get to you and me to realize is that I want New Community to be a church where we take discipleship and life transformation seriously. Can I get an amen? Listen, listen to me. Do you realize that many of you pass like 100 churches before you get here? Do you realize that you pass churches who have amazing worship? I mean, it's just, it's just it's like an incredible production with lights and fog. And, and you sit there and go, oh my gosh, this is an incredible. You will bypass churches with amazing preachers, way better than me. You will pass by churches that offer amazing children's programs. I mean, you'll pass churches just to get here. And I want to ask you a question. If you're here and you're doing that, are you serious about life transformation? Look, we've been on this journey of journey towards your true self, which is essentially a confessional of a recovering pastor. And what I've been trying to tell you is this. I'm trying to tell you that we want to be a church where we take vulnerability, transparency, brokenness seriously. What I'm trying to tell you is that we want to be a church where our doing for God has to come out of being with God. What I'm trying to tell you is that we want to be a church where we take these ancient practices like silence, solitude, seriously. What I'm trying to tell you is that being emotionally healthy and allowing God to do a deep inner work in you is at the core of who you want to be. What I'm trying to tell you is that we want to be a church that takes things like Sabbath seriously. What I'm trying to tell you is that we don't want to be kind of a church where we're just burning people out for the sake of what? Okay, that's a, that's a very odd pause. Mic check. You guys, um, does this make any sense? Why are you here? Why am I here? And can I tell you something? I, I struggle even saying stuff like this because of this reason. I realize that the kind of church that I envision, it's not gonna be big. But I'm realizing I'd rather have 100 of you that are serious about growing in deep discipleship than 1,000 people who are just coming for a show. Because last time I checked, Jesus changed the world with just a dozen people. So I'm asking you, are you serious about deep life transformation? Am I serious about deep inner work and transformation? And if you're not okay, and if I'm not okay, and if as you're sitting here, you're going, you just described me, Peter. I know the Bible inside out. I've been in church all my life. But my spiritual growth has hit a ceiling like years back, and I'm struggling with stuff, and I, I, I don't have a prayer life. I don't know how to rest. I'm restless all the time. I'm agitated. My marriage is in trouble. I struggle with deep addictions that I can't tell anybody about. There's no joy or contentment in my life. Like, if that's you, hey, I want you to know that you're at the right place because we are serious about deep 
inner work of God. Spiritual growth doesn't happen because of head knowledge. You don't need more information. Sometimes I preach a sermon, like I'm going to today, your eyes are going to roll and you go, oh, I've heard that a thousand times. You know what spiritual formation is? To me, it's actually about unlearning some things you've learned. It's about deconstructing things that you've learned and these deep patterns, deep patterns, family of origin, church culture, your seminary professor, is unlearning these things and allowing God access to deep parts of our lives. You don't need more head information. You don't need more head knowledge. Trust me. You don't need more information. You don't, you don't need more, oh, I have access to the... You don't... What you need is to come to a place of saying, God, I am so serious about genuine, deep, authentic life transformation that I'm willing to do whatever it takes. About a year ago when I left for my leave. I went away on a retreat <clears throat> overnight to Lake Geneva, and as I sat by the lake waters on a bench, it was almost audible, but this is what I heard from God, and I'm gonna put it up there. Peter, when and am I gonna be enough for you? When and am I going to be enough for you? When? And it wasn't like a judgmental, it was a, a gentle voice of love. Just yearning that says, when, my son? When? See, when, when God isn't enough for me, I yearn for people's validation and approval. When God isn't enough for me, I have like this chip on my shoulder that says, I, I'm going to prove everybody because I fail to realize I'm already approved. When God isn't enough for me, I get sucked into this culture of envy and I start thinking like if I only had their job, their ministry, their... When God isn't enough for me, I place unrealistic expectations on my spouse. When God isn't enough for me, I completely fail to embrace God-given, and this is what I'm talking about today, limits. I would say vast majority of what's caused heartache, brokenness, dysfunction in my life is failure to embrace God's gift of limits because I am living from, God, you're not enough for me. From the very beginning of time, God places limits as a gift. In the garden, God says, Adam and Eve, come here. You guys could eat from anything in this garden, but from that tree, tree of knowledge, good and evil, you must not eat. God was establishing what will become foundational to reality, which is, I am going to gift you the ability to rule with me, but within that context is embracing this thing called limits. You will not eat of that tree. God was reminding them foundational reality. I am God, you're just a 
creature. I am the potter, you're the clay. Will you embrace your creatureliness and depend on me as a source of all things? In the beginning of garden, in the beginning in the garden, God establishes a tree to say, will you trust my goodness and embrace my gift of limits or will you war against it? Will you embrace gift of limits or will you war against it? Well, from Genesis 3, we've been warring against limits. What are some limits you say? Well, let me just put them up there. Time limits. How many hours do you have in a day? <laughs> 24, you have 24 hours a day. Then why do you live like you have 30? Well, we only have a certain amount of days on earth. This is the reason why death confronts us with ultimate reality of our limits, doesn't it? We only have a limited amount of days. This is, by the way, another reason why we don't grieve well is because we push against limits. What about physical limits, okay? I'm like five, nine on a good day. <laughs> My wife keeps reminding me, you ain't five, nine, man. I'm like, just give me a couple of inches, okay? I weigh 150 some pounds. I have physical limits of what I can do, what I can't do. If I don't rest, good nutrition, if I don't take care of my body, if I don't get enough sleep, your body will break down. And some of you know that. Relationship status limits. God says when you're single, you have certain limits and certain opportunities. When you're married, you have certain limits, certain opportunities. Married couples, why are you warring against limits of your relationship status? Season of life limits. Young couples, how many kids? One kid comes along, limits. Two kids comes along, limits. Three kids come along, limits. But why do you war against it though? I'll tell you why. Genesis 3. We war against these seasons of life limits instead of embracing them and saying, God, what does it mean for me to be in this season? Why do we go when I was single and we were married, no kids? Instead of saying, it's a gift, how do I live into it? Some of us are on the other end where we now are actually children who are having to care for our aging parents, which provides limits also. Capacity limits, intellect talents, even spiritual gifts, the Bible says, not everybody has all the gifts. We have all kinds, I want to lynch it, and yet our posture, our attitude is what? I'm not going to embrace these as a gift. What? What? Because our culture says limits are for losers. My hero in this regard is John the Baptist. John the Baptist is someone I'm falling in love with more and more and more as I study his life, okay? Some of you are like, yes. John the Baptist, for me, is the example of someone who lived his entire life with joy and contentment. Anybody want joy and contentment? Joy and contentment because he embraced God-given limits as a gift. John, John. I'm going to talk about today. John, for me, is the example that, that, that I'm following. So John comes from a highly respected family in Israel. Do you remember who his father was? His father was? See, you don't know John the Baptist. You think you do, but you don't. His father was Zechariah. Do you remember? 
Zechariah looks at who is Zechariah? Zechariah is the priest, one of the most important significant priests in the nation of Israel at the time, and he's a Levite for crying out loud. John doesn't come from some no-known family. John comes from priesthood royalty. His father is a Levite priest, which means that John was supposed to become a what? A priest. John should have been going to the best schools, getting the best education, and serving alongside his father in the temple. That's who John the Baptist is. And yet he goes, no. He just disappears into the desert. And he emerges years later. By the way, I just thought about this. It's just me. It's not in the Bible. I, I'm trying to think about that conversation between Zechariah and John. So John, what you going to do? I'm just going to go into the desert. But you're supposed to be a priest in the temple, respectable. No, Dad. I kind of know what that feels like, by the way. John, and, and John doesn't care about food, clothing. You guys know that already, right? He's consumed with one thing and one thing only. You know what that is? The kingdom of God. When you look at John, when you look at John, you see he's completely free from pretending, performing, pleasing, perfecting. John doesn't care an iota about impressing people, what people think. Do you get that picture? By the way, Jesus is always talking about the gospels about how don't do things to impress people and get people to notice you. Jesus is always saying, don't pray in a way that people will notice you. Don't give in a way people will notice you. Because Jesus says, when people notice you and they go, wow. Jesus says, that's your gift. That's all you get is your wow. John is completely free from any need to impress, any need to bit people. By the way, do we struggle with that? Can I just say this? I think for many of us, our struggle to embrace limits is because we have this need to impress and to get people to notice. I just got a letter from a student who used to attend our church and she moved to a different city. And she's been listening to our podcast. She wrote a long handwritten letter. I don't get many of those these days, but it was as powerful. And she said, Pastor Peter, I've struggled all my life with what other people think of me. I found this amazing proverb, proverb chapter uh, 29, verse 29. It says, fearing people is a dangerous snare but trusting the Lord means safety. Do you know that the word snare in Hebrew was literally a word that was used to describe a noose that was put around the neck of an animal or a ring around the ring, uh, nose of an animal and its sole purpose was to control the animal. And the Bible says when you fear man, when you care about what people think, when you want to impress and get people to notice you, you're completely controlled to which some of you go, I'm not controlled by what people think. Really? Then why can't you say no? Why do you have a terrible time drawing boundaries? Why do you make promises you can't keep? When you live your life in light of what people think, someone said, you wind up hating them. Who are you trying to impress? Who are you so desperate to notice you? Man, this guy John, he's so free from that. He is, so, he is so free from that, and he's able to move through life totally free from any need to impress, any need to get people to notice him. John, I love this, is living for the audience of one. There's only one set of eyes that matter to him, and his name is Jesus. 
John is completely free from any need to impress anybody, get people to notice him, because the only set of eyes that actually matters, John knows, are on him. How about you? How about me? Are you living for the audience of one? Do you have other set of eyes that matter to you more than your heavenly father? Because if you do, you will search for the rest of your life, always discontent. Another thing about John is because he's completely free from need to impress, get people to notice him. Whenever he spoke, there was an edge to it. There was a power to it. You know what John was? John's a sharp axe. Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 10.10. Using a dull axe requires great strength. No kidding, Solomon. So sharpen the blade. That's the value of wisdom. It helps you succeed. John is a sharp ax. When he speaks, there's power. There's an edge. Do you know why? He's been sharpened in the desert. He's been sharpened. Alone in the wilderness with the Father. In the desert, he is stripped of his false self and he needs to impress, get people to notice him. I want to be respected. And he becomes a sharp blade in the hands of God. You cannot give what you do not possess. You want to be effective for the kingdom of God? Sharpen your blade. Don't fear the desert. Don't fear the wilderness. You want to be used of God? Sharpen the blade. Changed people will change the world. Spend more time, listen to me please, spend more time in anonymity getting your blade sharpened than all the time out there trying to run around do kingdom work. Sharpen your blade. Can I get an amen? Sharpen your blade. Sharpen your blade. I'm preaching to myself, by the way, this morning. 90% of our life is lived out there in front of what people say and think. And God's going, go back into the wilderness, Peter. Sharpen your blade. Sharpen your blade. Uh, turn your Bibles to John 1, which is where we're going to be. We're going to be in John 1 and John 3. First in John 1, the people of God, context, are living under, as many of you know, oppressive rule of the Roman Empire. For 400 years, when John comes along, there's been no word. 400 years had passed since the last prophet had spoken a word from God, and then comes John, of course. By the way, you know what I love? You know what I love? You know what I love? John had one sermon. <laughs> he had one sermon. I thought you'd find that funny. I found that funny. John had one sermon and it was repent. And thousands of people. By the way, do you know what John did? John would have been like, John would have been like run out of like church planting, church growth conferences because here was John's plan. I'm going to go into the desert. Y'all want to find me and hear me? Come out to the desert. And thousands of people followed him. He had such a large following that in Acts chapter 19, 
this is 20 years after John's long gone, Jesus long gone, 20 years after, we hear of references to John's disciples. You talk about legacy. John's the man when we come to John 1. He is at the height of his powers as a preacher. John 1, 19. This was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders sent priests and temple assistants from Jerusalem to ask John, hey John, who are you? Really good question, isn't it? Who are you? Here's a more important question though. Whose are you? Who do you belong to? Who do you answer to? You'll never find who you are if you just go, who am I? No, whose are you? Who's your authority? Who do you answer to? Who gives you validation? Who gives you affirmation? Whose voice are you listening to? Who are you trying to impress? Who are you trying to get to notice you? If God is not, if you are not the beloved of God, you will search for the rest of your life. Who are you? Verse 20, he came right out and said to them, I am not the Messiah. This is one of those cases where preachers go, this just preaches itself. Can you say that with me? And like, like you mean it? I am not. Oh, I know. You don't want to say it. Because it's conviction. Say it with me. I am not. The Messiah. No, not like this time. Now say it like you mean it. Ready? Here we go. Ready? I am not. The Messiah. I am not the Messiah. And why are you trying so hard to save the world? What is that? Why are you trying to be the Messiah at this school? Why are you trying to be a Messiah at your workplace? What is that? Peter, why are you trying to be the Messiah of all of Chicago? How big is your ego? What is that? And by the way, those of us evangelical Christians that grew up in conservative theology, I am about grace, I am about grace, I believe in grace. Well, if you believe in grace, then why are you trying so hard to save other people? Don't we believe that we're saved by grace? There's nothing we did, there's nothing we can do. Do you believe that you're saved by grace? Then why are you trying so hard to save other people? Matthew 11, Jesus says about John the Baptist, of all the people born of women, there's none greater than John. But John can't forgive sins. John can't send the Holy Spirit into your life. The greatest man ever born. More than Moses, more than Moses. Elijah, Elijah, name all of them. And John says, I am not the Messiah. I can't forgive people's sins. I can't send the Holy Spirit into their lives. All I can do is get people in position where God can change them. That's our job. Stop it. You're not the Messiah. You have limits. You are not. I am not the Messiah. Verse 21. Well then, well then who are you? You can tell they're getting frustrated, right? They ask, are you Elijah? Mm, no. 
Are you the prophet we're expecting? Mm, no, please get this. John is absolutely clear about who he is not. John is absolutely clear about what he cannot do. John says, I am not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. John is absolutely clear, not only about who he is and what he can't do, but about what he cannot do and what he is not. And maybe for some of us, the journey towards finding who we are begins with, here's who I am not, here's what I'm not called to do. Can I get an amen? Now this is so foreign in our world. Where the heck are you going to go where people go, you know what's most important about you? This is who you're not. You know what's most important about you? This is what you cannot do. We live in a culture that says, you can be anything you want. Not all of you are going to be CEO. No! Yeah, you're not gonna, no. Not all of you are gonna be best-selling authors. No! Yeah, no, no. Not all of you are gonna be, you know, uh, uh, principals of school. Not all of you, because God did not give you the capacity for that, and that is not your kingdom assignment. Can I get an amen? Not all of you are gonna be Mother Teresa's. But I have news for you. Moms of three, Mother Teresa couldn't do what you do. I'm going to make it plain, Amber. Mother Teresa cannot do what you do. Why do we? There is an incredible difference between emulating our heroes and wanting to be them. God didn't call you to be the next Mother Teresa. God didn't call you to be the next Martin Luther King Jr. God didn't call you to be the next. What is your God-given calling? What is my God-given calling? But I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know what's really ironic? You know what's really ironic? I can do all things. You know what Paul's meaning there? He's talking about contentment. <laughs> Read the context. Paul's saying, I am finally content. I can do all things. That's about contentment. That's what maturity is. That's what growth is. Is when you're comfortable in your skin and you go, this is who God called me to be and created me to be and I'm good with that. Some of us have come to the place where we're learning about our limits because of failure, because of mistakes. Anybody? Ministry that blew up, failed marriage, divorce, fire from our jobs, bankruptcy. But I want to just tell you some good news today because Satan's going to try and convince you and go, your life is done. God's got plan B for you. I want to tell you right now from the bottom of my heart that God doesn't have plan B for your life. His plan for your life is still progressing as God intended. Can I get an amen? There's no, someone clap for that. There's no mistake, no sin, no failure, nothing that you can do to limit what God wants to do in your life. God's plan for your life is progressing even despite our sins. Is that good news? And Satan's going to have some, can try to convince some of us, you know what, you're done, man, because God, you just broke the lid. God goes, you know what, I'm going to even take your flaws, your sins, your mistakes, and I'm going to work it and weave it so that my ultimate purpose for you is done. That is amazing news. That's amazing news. That's amazing news. If you're on a journey to discovering 
and receiving your God-given limits, first of all, some of y'all might need to find out who you're not and what you're not called to do. There's as much guidance in what does not and cannot happen as there is in what does and can. You know who you need? You need somebody who loves you enough to look you in the eyes and go, that's not who you are. That's not what you're called to do. And you will have a hard time finding those people. Verse 22, then who are you, man? We need an answer for those who sent us. What do you have to say about yourself? And John replied in the words of the prophet Isaiah, I'm a voice shouting in the wilderness, clear the way for the Lord's coming. Then the Pharisees who had sent John asked asked him, if you aren't the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet, then what right do you have to baptize? And John told them, I baptize with water. But right here in the crowd is someone you do not even recognize. Though his ministry follows mine, I'm not even worthy to be his slave and untie the straps of his sandal. Rabbinic laws at the time said that only slaves could be required to take someone's sandal off and wash their feet. It's so demeaning, it's so lowly that even rabbis couldn't, fi- couldn't order their disciples to do that. It's what slaves can do. And here's John the Baptist, the greatest man born of women who says, and I'm not even worthy of a slave. I am not even in the ballpark of a slave. To which if you and I are going, well, that's just such low self-esteem. Who? That's just incredibly low self-worth. Why would anybody say that? If you say that, that's because you don't understand the gospel. When you lessen the gravity of sin, you lessen the power of grace. When you lessen the gravity of sin, you know who understands the gospel of grace? Desperate people. Any, any desperate people in here today? Yeah. You know who understands the gospel of grace? Needy people. Do you know who I found understands the gospel of grace? People who failed miserably in their lives, they understand grace. People that struggle with grace the most are those of you that are sitting there going, but I've been a good moral person most of my life, haven't done anything wrong. The gospel says, all you need is nothing, but some of us don't even have that. The gospel says, I'm not even worthy to to untie the thongs of a sandal. I am more wicked and more sinful than I dare believe, but that's just one half of the gospel, isn't it? Because there's another half, (laughs) which is our hope. The other half. Verse 29, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, behold, everybody say behold, behold, everybody say behold, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Hey, he's the one I was talking about when I said a man is coming after me who is far greater, far greater than I will ever be. For he existed long time before me. You know who John is? He is completely self-aware. Hello, the self-awareness. There is zero false humility about him. And some of us are experts at false humility. You know who you are. John says, I am so self-aware. He goes, I know who I am. I'm just a voice. I'm not the voice. I'm just a voice. My job is just to prepare the way. Because right there, that guy, he is far. There is poise. There is contentment. There is joy. There is calm. There is, there is utter, utter utter confident secure joy about him do you know why because every one look that john looked at himself i am unworthy he took a thousand looks at the lamb of god 
for every one second at look how unworthy I am, he took an hour to look at the Lamb of God. Do you know the secret to living in total freedom as John did? How was he able to be so set free from need to impress and people notice this? He beheld the Lamb of God. How did he remain laser focused on God's mission for him and didn't allow other people to go do this, do that, do that? He beheld the Lamb of God. How did John set free from wanting to get people to respect and notice? He beheld the Lamb of God, the gospel. Although I am not even unworthy to untie the thongs of his sandal, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Although I'm more wicked and sinful than I dare believe, in Christ I am more accepted and loved than I dared hope at the same time. Is this good news? Do you know the secret to John's life? He beheld the Lamb of God, Jesus. Some of you only get the first part. I'm unworthy. And you think you're being humble. Please. Pride comes in two forms. Superiority complex, I'm all that, and then some. And then the inferiority complex, I am so bad. And on a daily basis, you and I fluctuate. I'm all that. I'm so bad. I'm all that. I'm so bad. I'm all that. I'm so bad. And what we have in common right there is the whole time we're still focused on who? Me. Self-absorption. Self-centeredness. Do you really want to be free from people's noticing you? Do you know where you have to get to? John. You know, he says, behold, I am so unworthy. No. Behold the Lamb of God. In other words, John is not only set free from what other people think of him, John is set free from what he thinks of himself. <laughs> Do you know why you're never going to be set free from your addiction to people? Because you might be walking artists out there. I don't care what people think. I know you don't care what people think, but you care deeply about what you think. And what you think is either I'm all that and some or I am nothing. And as long as you're there, you're still about you. And 90% of us, the reason why we can't take our eyes off of ourselves is because we are failing to behold what? Say it with me. The Lamb of God. You're not being humble. Don't fool anybody. You're not being humble. Self-absorption, self-centeredness comes in two forms. You're not being humble. You're still bound to what you think. Does anybody want to rest in a world that knows nothing but striving? Does anybody want to walk in contentment in a world where people are just grasping? Does anybody want to be liberated from the rat race? You have to get to where John is. He says, I could care less what other people think. I don't even care what I think of myself. All that matters is what God thinks. And he spoke loud and clear 2,000 years ago what he thinks of me. Behold the Lamb of God. 28, verse 28. Let's keep going. Almost done here. You yourselves know plainly how I told you I'm not the Messiah. I'm only here to prepare the way for him. It's the bridegroom who marries the bride, and the bridegroom's friend is simply glad to stand with him and hear his news, hear his vows. So I am filled with joy and success. But John, none of your disciples are filled with joy and success. He's like, I don't care. They're going, they're all going to Jesus, man. Come on, we're losing popularity. Do something, John. And remember, he has thousands of followers. Jesus is a nobody. The temptation to go, ah, yeah, God's plan for my life? That's, nah, I'm gonna do what people want me to do. John doesn't. He stays the course. He stays the course. 
Real quick here, verse 30. I'm sorry. I just completely skipped like a bunch of verses. Where to what verse was I? John, let's go back to John 23. Verse 23. I just gave you a preview. Verse 23, I'm sorry. At this time, John the Baptist was baptizing at Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water there and people kept coming to him for baptism. John's disciples came to him and said, Rabbi, the men you met at the other side of the Jordan River, the one you identified as the Messiah, is also baptizing people and everybody is going to him. You know why this is important? Because sometimes the temptation to live beyond your God-given limits will come from other people. When you begin to live within your God-given limits, other people will get upset and wonder why you're not doing more, doing different, doing other. Other people will try and tell you what's best for you. Other people will sometimes be your greatest hindrance to embracing gift limits. How many of you guys know about this? Anybody? See, and what makes this so hard is these people, as John's disciples were to him, these people, they mean well. Parents, mentors, professors, pastors. This is why I'm realizing, listen very carefully, I'm realizing that there's no way to embrace God-given limits in your life unless you're willing to disappoint some people. Matter of fact, let me say it this way. If you're never disappointing anybody in your life, you are not living within your limits. In a world where nobody, very few people are living within God-given limits, if you actually stand firm in courage and saying, I'm going to embrace God-given limits for my life. I don't care what you think. I'm going to stand firm. You're going to disappoint some people. Do you know that if I listened to my parents' advice about what God's will for my life was, I would be in Korea right now pastoring an English-speaking congregation Is anybody glad here that I planted new communities 16 years ago and followed God's voice? It was not for cheap cheap clap either. I'm just telling you that my journey towards embracing God-given limits meant that I had to disappoint my parents. Can we just name it? Do you know why we don't want to disappoint people? Because we fear man more than we fear God. Do you know why we don't want to disappoint people? Because we're addicted to people approval and people affirmation. Do you know why we're afraid to disappoint people? Because we care way more about what people think than what God thinks. Can we just name it? Isn't that why we can't say no? Isn't that why we don't live with our boundaries? Isn't that why we work 80 hours a week? Isn't that why we put unrealistic expectations on our spouses and friends around us? Isn't that why we continue to make commitments to things when we don't have no capacity for it? Isn't that why we continue to disregard God's capacity and God's gift for us and start doing things that that has nothing to do with us? Unless you're willing to disappoint some people, you will never embrace God's lips in your life. Verse 27, John replied, so no one can receive anything unless God gives it from heaven. This is literally what he's saying. There are kingdom assignments from heaven with my name on it. And there are kingdom assignments from heaven with other people's name on it. My job is to figure out what kingdom assignments from heaven has my name on it. There are lots of needs out there, but God didn't give anybody in this room all the gifts and say, go solve the whole world's problems. God says, I've given you a kingdom niche, an inch of Chicago, the world, and that area is your responsibility, and that is your job. I have a question for you, and the question that I want you to go home today with is this, am I, am I 
living the life? Am I living? Is, is the kingdom assignment that God has for me? Is that what God is moving to do? The kingdom assignment that God has for me. Is that? Is that what God has for me to do? And in the sea prevailing culture where everybody wants to tell you what you're called to do, what you need to do, do you, do you have clarity about what it is that God has called you to do? Author of Hebrews says, we are to run the race marked out for us, for us, not somebody else's race, by fixing our eyes on Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. Guys, give me like two minutes to say something very, very important before I finish, and that is this. This isn't just about me. Here's what I want you to realize. I realize that our church also has God-given limits. Can I get an amen to that? I am so sorry, church. that in my desire to be all things to all people in all the unhealthy ways. I led this church for almost 16 years without asking the question, Peter, you're one local church. You can't be all things to all people. And it took Seven months of sober reflection for me to come to this place of going, we are one local church and God has a kingdom assignment with our name on it and our job is just to do that. Can I get an amen? And we can't do God's work in a way that kills God's work in us. We as a church can't do ministry that's burning people out or straining relationships in the body. Please pray for me. Please pray for our leaders that we would have wisdom and discernment as we enter into this next season to go, God, what is your kingdom assignment for us as a church and help us to be faithful to that. Can I get an amen? And if I as your pastor ever, ever, ever in my own ego try and lead our church to be and do things that we're not called to do and if we as a body could agree our job is to be the church that God has called us to be in Chicago and partner with other kingdom-minded churches that we together will fulfill God's mission. That that would be our heart's desire. Amen? All right. Now the verses I went to, verse 28, you yourselves know how plainly I told you I'm not the Messiah. I'm only here to prepare the way for him. It's a bridegroom who marries a bride and the bridegroom's friend is simply glad to stand with him and hear his vows. So I am filled with joy at his success. Verse 30, so he must become greater and greater and I must become less and less. I have that Bible verse on a poster framed in my wall. Do you know why? Because in the eight months that I was away, here's what I realized. I don't know if you guys will get this and, and, and if I'm gonna explain it well. The way that sometimes we rob God of his glory it's not just becoming more, but it's doing more than we're asked to do. It's taking on things that doesn't have our name on it. It's busying ourselves to look busy. It's not just about, well, I'm gonna become less. God's going, no, no, no. Maybe the way you ultimately glorify me and I get the glory is you do less. You do what's assigned to you. And let other people do what's assigned to them. See, ultimately, this is about trust. Kevin, come on out. I told you guys eight weeks ago when I began this, 
And it sounds so stupid saying out loud, but it's like, God, I can't trust you with the church. I know what's best. I want what's best. I know what's best for this church. You will not, listen, you will not embrace God's gift of limits for your life unless you trust that in his wisdom, he knows what's best for you. You will not embrace God-given limits unless you trust that in his love, he desires what is best for you. And you will not embrace God-given limits unless you trust that God in his sovereignty has the power to bring his kingdom will to pass. You will not embrace God's limits around money if you do not trust that it is ultimately God who provides. You will not embrace, I can't do it alone and I need other people in my life limit unless you trust, you trust, you trust that as long as you stay faithful to yours, God has called others to join you. It's about trust. So how can I trust him? Behold the lamb. I can embrace God-given limits because I serve a God of limitless grace. I can embrace, what do I mean? Jesus is our high priest who is not able, unable to sympathize with that weakness because he's gone through everything we've gone through. Here's what happens. And we began this journey as we close it today. We began this journey in Luke 4 where Jesus is in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. And the entire temptation is about his limits as a human and his limits are on God's plan and God's timetable. And Satan comes, you realize, and says what? Turn those stones into bread. Jump off from the temple and catch, be caught by the angels and people will follow you. Come on, abandon the cross, abandon the cross. Just bow down to me once and all the kingdoms of the world will be yours, Jesus. Limits are for losers. Do it. And what does Jesus do? Jesus refused to turn the stones into bread so that he could become the bread of life for us. Praise God that Jesus didn't jump, but he came down the steps of the temple so that we could fall safely into his arms. Praise God that Jesus, instead of bowing down to Satan, walked through the wilderness to the cross so that we can become subjects in the kingdom of God. Is that good news? How can you trust him? Because we serve a God. When we desperately need one night good sleep, we serve a God who neither slumbers nor sleeps. How can you trust him? Because when you and I are going, ah, I can't rest. I got to build. The Bible reminds us, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders what? Build in vain. And when you and I are going, but there are things left undone. I need to finish it. We remember that we serve a God of an empty tomb and his kingdom is still advancing. We serve a God of limitless grace. That's how you and I could embrace these God-given limits and say, thank you, Father. How can you trust and behold the Lamb? And I'll tell you what happened to me. I tell you what, I'm gonna sit down for like 30 seconds. I'll tell you what happened to me. When God's limitless grace started to become real, it's not totally real yet, it started to become real, something strange happened to me. When I began to say, Jesus is enough, Jesus is enough, Jesus is enough for me, I began to hear this voice in my head, and that is, hidden in Christ and God, I'm enough. Will you say this with me? Say it with me. I am 
Come on, say it with me. I am what? I am enough. You know what that means for me? I don't have to impress you. I'm enough hidden with Christ and God. You know what this means for me? I don't have to get you to notice me. Why? Hidden with Christ and God, what? I'm enough. I don't have to preach an amazing sermon hoping that people will come back. Why? Because hidden with Christ and God, what? I am enough. And I am beginning this journey of being set free. Don't you want to be free? Don't you want to be free? Close your eyes with me. Let's pray. Don't you want to be free? I do. Don't you want with, with, with deep humility, but confident humility, as John says, I'm enough. I'm just a voice. I'm not the voice. I'm just a voice. I've got my kingdom niche. I know what I'm called to do. I know I'm called to prepare the way. Don't, don't you want that kind of freedom? Don't you want to be able to walk into your workplace tomorrow, your schools, your homes? Don't you want to be able to go wherever it is you go and say, hidden with Christ and God, I know what God thinks of me. I know what he says about me. I am enough. I'm enough. I'm enough. Jesus is enough for me. That means I'm enough. Maybe a moment before worship team leads us. And Jamie, if we could sing, worthy is the lamb. Worthy is the lamb. Worthy is the lamb. And just remind us as she sings this. And I'd love it if you guys could open your eyes, if you can, and look at this wooden cross up here. Or if you want to keep your eyes closed, visualize Jesus, the lamb of God, on the cross. Crying out, it is finished. There is no more work to be done. So rest, rest, rest in my completed work. Rest.